This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Thank you, Sherry, for agreeing to be in conversation today. I'm really excited. I've just really enjoyed your book and have enjoyed meeting you at the Women's Rising Conference at CIAS. So it's a special treat to get to be able to be in dialogue and conversation with you today. Uh, Thank you, Brenda, for agreeing to do this and to have this conversation. I was uh, really looking forward to my time out at CIAS this spring, but of course, everything changed with COVID. And uh, the last time I was out there, I had the pleasure of meeting you and being able to share some time with, with you. And um, I'm really happy that you're the person that was chosen to be in this conversation with me. So it's nice to see you again and to be able to share this time with you. So uh, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, I want to just thank you for the gift, you know, of Sacred Instructions. It's been a real blessing to to read more about the teachings that you've been given. And, um, you know, both of us, I think, are very grateful for our ancestors and for those who have helped us on this path of medicine and service to community. So um, I would love to just kind of start by saying um, gratitude, a lot of gratitude, because I know it's a lot to write a book of this nature and to share things that have been shared orally for so long. Um, and just the timing of it, right? Um, I know that for, for my peoples and then for my teachers in the Toltec path and, and different indigenous teachers I've had, we're in a very particular time in the calendar and in consciousness shift. So this uh, book coming out when it did was very timely in preparing for this time, but also just, um, I think, as a human family, right? We're in a very particular time. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about, um, I know that in the description of this, uh, CIS talked about Native American cosmology and what it can teach us about healing our collective wounds. We have individual healing to do, but then we have a lot of collective healing to do. And so I'm wondering what you might share that you feels, re- feels relevant for this call for the short time we have together that feels really important around the cosmology. Because I know when I've been trained by indigenous teachers, they never started teaching you as a medicine person They uh, around the medicine. They always started with the cosmology. So that feels really foundational. Um, yeah. So um, uh, first of all, I just would like to say, and Dili we see one of the people my name and my language is Wanahamugwasit, uh, the colonial name, Sherry Mitchell. And my family is Bear Clan from the Penobscot Nation and Crow Clan from the Passamaquoddy tribe of Zibayak. And so I just want to acknowledge my, my relatives um, before we begin. And... You know, I think it's really important for us to think about some of these stories because um, 
as we know, the cosmology is not a creation story. It's, uh, a, it might be an origination story for the chapter that we're living in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the creation happened long, long, long ago. And so the majority of these stories that we tell about the creation are the creation of this iteration of life on earth. And so um, there's one story in particular that I think really is relevant to our healing that um, I am actually working on the follow-up to sacred instructions. And this story will be in, in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that book, the sacred feminine Kachiniwesk and the sacred masculine Ekchamundo are, are kind of moving toward one another in, in the nothing. And uh, Ekchamundo, the sacred masculine, is in the form of this pool of matter, unrealized potential, right? It's just um, this stable pool of matter that's waiting for instruction. Uh, Kachiniwesk is moving toward Ekchamundo, and uh, when she encounters him, she begins to speak into Ekchamundo, and as she speaks into Ekchamundo, that matter begins to take form uh, as a result of the vibration and frequency of her words. And she continues speaking into Ekchamundo uh, and, and weaving her story until all of the matter that is contained um, there is in form, it's taken form. Uh, and then Ekchamundo forms a shell around all of that life that's been created uh, through the interplay between Kachiniwesk and Ekchamundo and that story of creation. Then Kachiniwesk begins to sing into that seed of life. And as she sings into that seed of life, it begins to vibrate and to move. Uh, and, and the pitch of her song continues to rise until that, that seed reaches a point where it bursts and life uh, is uh, scattered across the universe. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is uh, the story of this iteration of, of our life. And so that story for us is connected to all of our web of life teachings. And um, there's incredible depth in those teachings that doesn't get portrayed in some of these uh, stereotypical memes and representations that you see, uh, you know, online these days that are so trite uh, that when we're talking about web of life, what we're recognizing is that we all come from the same pool of matter that we are born of the same essence, uh, that, that we are, uh, as a result of that deep connection of the matter that has formed all of us, uh, inextricably quantum entangled. Like, And so uh, when we think about that quantum entanglement and what that means in relation to our interrelation, interrelatedness, our interdependence on one another, and where we are right now in regard to our healing, it really begins to help us to shape an understanding of the depth of that connectivity. And so uh, what quantum entanglement tells us is that any matter that's once been connected physically can never be disconnected energetically. But of course, we know that also means spiritually. And so um, when we think about that, and we think about... um, what does that mean in, in, you know, in real 
terms in regard to our life. Uh, a way that I like to describe it when I'm teaching about this is to think about something called phantom limb theory or phantom limb syndrome. And what that is, is when somebody has an amputation, say you have your leg amputated from the knee down and you continue to get phantom pain in that limb that's no longer connected physically, um, or you it itches or you have other sensations. Um, the doctors call that phantom limb theory and they talk about muscle memory and nerve memory. What that really is, is that's quantum entanglement, right? That's web of life. That's the matter that was once connected there physically is still connected energetically and spiritually. And so when we look at the incredible epidemic of trauma that exists right now on on mother earth when we look at the history of violence uh, when we look at the impact that human beings have had on the rest of life which is connected to another story that we have um, that perfectly describes the time we're living in right now um, then we begin to understand why one in three people on the planet have anxiety or depression we begin to understand why people are feeling immensely lonely even before the pandemic, uh, even when they're surrounded by people that they feel a deep connection to. Uh, we understand why people are, are thinking that there's something wrong with them because they're driving down the road on you know, any given day and they just can't stop crying. The grief is overwhelming them. And so then we start to recognize that what we're really feeling is the, the entanglement that we have with the rest of life. And, and we're at a time when that connection, that space between is thinning. So we're, we're feeling that something is being righted within us. We're no longer able to escape the consequences of that connectivity that we have. So when we're feeling this immense loneliness, what we're really feeling is the loneliness of the last white rhino on the planet who has no one left in their species to be with or communicate with. Mm -hmm. And um, this mother whale, Taliqua, who's, you know, blessedly expecting another baby who carried her dead calf around for 17 days for us to realize what we were doing to that ecosystem. You know, the panic of those in war zones, the panic of uh, our relatives, the tree people, as the fires and the loggers and the Amazon are just plowing them down. We're feeling all of these sensations that uh, are not only representations of the trauma that we've experienced or that may be in our ancestral lines, but that we're connected to through uh, this web of life across the planet. And so I think that, um, you know, when we think about what we've learned in those stories, it really frames an understanding for us to help us to interact with and engage and meaningfully work with the energies that we're enmeshed in right now. Yes. yes. Yeah. You speak a lot about in the book too. Um, also, I just want to back up because I appreciate how you introduced yourself um, because it's important to me too. <laughs> Uh, so I do want to name that I'm the daughter of Carlos and Esmeralda Salgado. We were born and raised in Nicaragua uh, near the villages, the small villages surrounding Volcan Masaya. And I was born and raised here in the San Francisco Bay Area in Daly City near San Francisco. And so I'm very tied and connected to the lands here. I live in San Leandro now, but still in the Bay Area. Uh, and this land is formerly known as Ohlone land, and it's still known as Ohlone land, <laughs> unceded territory for the Ohlone. Um, 
And, you know, my parents come from lands in Nicaragua that would have been traditionally called Chorotega lands. And so I feel a deep ancestral connection to both places because of being raised here and the connection with indigenous community here, and then also deeply connected by my ancestors to that land that my ancestors came from. And I've been grateful to be in ceremony in both places because it roots me in both places at once. Um, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, I was thinking a lot as I was reading your book about the similarities with some of the way the traditions I've been raised with, um, in particular, some of the Toltec teachings too, around that universal void. And then the, you know, the Ometeo, which represents those masculine feminine energies that birth things into being, but they're in partnership, they're in relationship, they're in balance. Um, and those are energies. It's not a gender thing at that universe level, right? It's a, it's a, energy that needs to be in balance. And it also makes me think a lot about the prophecies of the eagle and the condor and the teachings that were here on Turtle Island before colonization of just the need to be in balance, right? The wing of the eagle and the intellect and the masculine and then doing in the material plane and, and that feminine and the intuition and the love and the compassion and connection with the earth, that, uh, that, that sense of being needs to come before the doing. And uh, I, I, you spoke so beautifully about that in the book. Um, I was really intrigued by uh, the, your, the words, the language in, that you shared around what husband and wife means, which really uh, I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. Knowing that we have um, two spirit folks, we have folks who are in same-sex partnerships. So again, I don't want it to be about... Um, gender as much as energies, but I would love for you to share what those translations are and, and what that speaks to around balance individually and collectively. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for this opportunity. I think that this is really important right now because we're, we're in a time of universal learning where the fluidity between gender identifications that is taking place here. Um, amongst human beings is elevating us to a new level of consciousness where we're moving out of our um, binary states of thinking, which across the board have been really destructive, right? We, you know, we needed some structure and format maybe in the early stages of our learning. Um, uh, but what has happened as a result of colonization has been that um, all of our our ways of knowing and our ways of being as, um, you know, Skijinawak people, as indigenous peoples, uh, has been stripped away in, in um, the imposition of other ideologies has been, you know, um, violently imposed upon our on our peoples. And so for us, we had um, multiple identifications for who people were. Um, and uh, including five, five different gender identifications not locked into a binary. And so when we talk, when I talk about these things in the book, I stress the fact that this is, these are energetic qualities, that there are, there are some people who are born into, uh, you know, what we would perceive as women's bodies who carry masculine energy and vice versa. And then there are those who hold the space in between, that sacred space in between. Um, and 
another thing to remember is that when we're talking about those who hold that space in between and we're talking about two spirit, um, that that's not a sexual preference identification. That's a spiritual <laughs> designation. Um, yes. And that, that people can't just go around claiming I am two spirit because they're gay. Uh, that that's 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 a complete misrepresentation of that of that um, understanding of what two spirit means. It means that you are holding both the masculine and feminine one hundred percent and one hundred percent in balance within your mm-hmm. spiritual being, and you have a very special spiritual place uh, in holding the balance between those two energies. And so, I, I wanted to clarify that too because I think it's often misused as mm-hmm. um, as an identification that that. Um, talks about sexual preference when it's really not. It's um, it's also you know not uh, necessarily a gender identification. It's a spiritual designation. And so the the aspect that I was talking about in the book, using the examples um, in uh, one of our Chwabanaki languages, uh, specifically the Mi'kmaq language, is that um, the word for um, husband and for wife. Uh, actually talks about this energetic characteristic right and how how there's the interplay between the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine in the whole scope of creation and so uh when you talk about um the husband obedeam it's the one who takes me under their skin and so you know people think about that in return oh i'm gonna wrap a big buffalo skin around the two of you right and that person takes me under their skin but then we also think about mother earth and father sky and father sky is that protective layer that surrounds mother earth that protective external skin that interfaces um, between the sacred feminine and the external uh, world and so when we're when we're talking about um that that skin uh that that's that outer shell that interfaces with the external world and then uh ohadi the word for wife is uh the one who keeps me connected to my heart and spirit knowing that the feminine is receptive it's internal not external and that uh the you know in the in that woman's body there is an opening to the divine where life actually enters into this world and so there's there's this natural connection to um that wisdom of of the divine that that moves through um, and is held in that space right below the heart in the womb. And so, um, you know, that that space of creation is connected to both, both divine wisdom, uh, our intuition, uh, and also our heart, heart-based knowing. And so that's, that's the feminine. And that, um, that interplay between the two, that the feminine communicates that wisdom to the masculine and then uh, that action out into the world takes place guided by that wisdom. And that uh, if we look at where we are right now, we see a society that has been stripped of the benefit of that divine, sacred, feminine wisdom. And so it's it's been moving completely out of balance. And, and the masculine needs that wisdom in order for them to be able to function to their highest um, possibility, right, at their highest level. Mm-hmm. Because without that wisdom of the sacred feminine, uh, the masculine can't achieve its full purpose. There's uh, just like if we had, if, if, you know, as a representation um, of the feminine, you know, if, if the sacred feminine has, has no place 
to communicate that wisdom and move it into external action, um, then it goes, it doesn't go anywhere, right? There's this dance, this interplay between those two energies that actually uh, visions, dreams into being, and then manifests into life. Uh, all of the things that have been created um, in time. And so, I, you know, I think that it's really important for people to understand that dance because I have uh, the sacred feminine within me and I use that energy to really, really dive deep within to, uh, to connect with a higher truth, to listen to the wisdom of my heart, to seek that guidance from the other side. And then I have masculine energy within me that I take that knowledge and I bring forward something that I choose to create in the outer world. And it's that dance within me, within my own being that makes that possible. And so uh, it's the same uh, on an individual basis as it is on the larger scale basis. And I, I think that um, one of the things that we're all learning right now is not only um, the importance of the movement between those two energies, but also there's always that space in between. So, uh, you know, we're uh, Medellin people. And so when uh, when we talk about that, that, that word, Medellin, um, what that actually refers to is the space between the skin and the wood on the drum. Mm. And it's in that space in between where those two come together that the action actually happens. And so when we're talking about, you know, all of this gender fluidity, uh, there's a necessity for the space in between to exist. It has a vital role, right? A sacred role. And so when we're, when we're uh, looking at the, the correlation between those, those deeper teachings and the immediacy of what we're facing right now in the world in regard to our larger learning, it's all becoming relevant in this present moment, right? Even though these teachings are ancient. And so, you know, the title of the book, Sacred Instructions, is how do we go back to those original teachings, those sacred instructions that have been handed down through vibration and frequency in our oral traditions, which made them live, you know, living elements um, and, uh, you know, allowed them to continue to be created into form as we're moving forward um, so that they're continue to be relevant to our present understanding of our place within creation, because all of that, all of that helps us to understand who we are. And also, where do we belong within the scheme of creation? Because we've been very egotistical as human beings, even though we're the youngest species on the planet and all other elements of creation carry more knowledge than we do, we still think that we're superior in some way. And as a result of that uh, egotistical illusion of superiority, we've actually caused irreparable harm to a number of species who have already gone extinct and a million more who are currently facing ex extinction. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot. Uh, there were parts of the book that really touched me and brought tears to my eyes. Um, and there were parts uh, that resonated with a similar reaction I had to a talk that Pat McCabe had done some time ago. Um, and it it's in the book, you were talking a little bit about the cultural trauma, the ancestral trauma, the intergenerational trauma, and particularly the trauma that undergirds the colonization and the suffering that happened. Um, 
I hear both you and Pat speak with truth around, you know, where certain peoples long, long ago lost their connection to their land, lost their connection to their ancestors, lost their um, connection to the interrelatedness, the web of life that you talk about. And kind of because of that disconnection, um, you know, became under the illusion of separation of uh, pathological individualism of the suppression of the feminine wisdom that you're ta- you just talked about. Um, and also that, you know, I think what, what struck me in, in, as you wrote about it was just, um, two things. I remember you saying, you know, when we think about a thread by itself, how weak it is, and that's the lie of the illusion and the separation. But when the threads are all tied together, how strong that network is. And so, you know, being raised in these teachings of, of not just connected me to you as a human being, but also connected to the earth and the guardians of the land that I'm on and making offerings to the land and connected to ancestors and having the ancestors on the altar. Um, and this understanding of our teachers, you know, there are trees that are my elders and my teachers here that are incredibly wise. The redwoods are, are one of my favorite teachers that I talk to. And so there's a sense of sadness I hold around peoples who have a lack of belonging and are walking around that illusion of war and separation. You talk a lot about the illusion of war and how that began. Um, so there's a tenderness and then also a real need for understanding about how we got here, right? Um, the, the piece I think that may, really struck my heart was when you said, when we're ill, we, fu- we seek medicine, right? And that there's some reason people who had lost their medicine came to a land where the medicine was still strong, that interconnection, that knowing, that belonging was still strong. So, I, and I, you know, there's a woman I know named Alpha Demolish. We were part of a retreat and she talked about there's a lot of privilege that we talk about that's not healthy around resources, around land, about money that needs to be, you know, distributed in the human family in, a, in an ethical way because of relationship. But she also talked about how she, as someone identified as uh, being raised in Ethiopia and in a culture of tradition, that she has a belonging privilege. Um, and so I, I felt that a lot as I was reading your book, that you have belonging privilege, that you belong to the land, to the ancestors, to the future generations, to the tree people. Um, and that that's what this book is, a gift of sharing your belonging privilege um, and trying to help people who are still living under a big illusion. Um, so how do you feel like in this, because we have such a short time together, of course, we, you and I could talk about this forever. <laughs> but I'm curious what you want to impart to people on the call around who are feeling in a lot of loneliness, separation, trauma, and particularly this time of COVID and the pandemic. I know the virus is coming here to teach us something and to slow us down and to go inward. Um, and that doesn't change the fact that I'm sad around the loss or the death, but I'm curious what you want to share with people around um, the cultural generational trauma and, and the steps where, where to look to begin healing that. Well, that's a, that's a lot of questions all rolled into one. <laughs> um, I, I just would like to start by, um, you know, acknowledging that, um, you know, this, this privilege of belonging um, is uh, what we recognize as Kachila Gudawagan. And what that is, is our original treaty 
It's our mm -hmm. original sacred contract uh, with the rest of creation that we have this privilege of belonging here uh, in this place. Uh, so long as we honor the sacredness of life that all other beings hold. And almost every single one of our origination stories um, start out with the animals coming forward and paving the way and making it possible for human beings to exist here. And so, uh, you know, in the Sky Woman story, the Sky Woman comes down and there's no place for her to birth her children and to mm -hmm. have her children uh, live here because it's all water. And so uh, the turtle comes up and, and she's looking for soil to put on the turtle's back to be, begin the landmass where she can birth her children. Mm -hmm. And all of the all of the animals try and they and they can't quite go deep enough. And so uh, finally, the little tiny muskrat comes forward and everyone laughs at the muskrat because the muskrat's so small and it's not a sea creature. It's not, a, you know, a water creature. Um, how is the muskrat going to be able to go deep enough to bring the soil back uh, to put on the turtle's back in order to create the landmass? for the people, um, but the muskrat goes and goes and goes and goes and grabs a handful of soil, um, but they've gone so deep that they end up losing their life. Mm -hmm. And so the muskrats, you know, they're waiting a long, long time. Finally, the muskrat's body rises to the surface and everyone is very, very sad. And um, mm -hmm. Sky Woman brings the muskrat onto turtle's back and and she's crying she's very sad that muskrat has sacrificed um their life for uh you know for her to have a place to birth her children and then they notice that you know there's the tiny little hand is clutched mm -hmm. and they open that hand and in in muskrat's hand there's soil um that is used to create the landmass where sky woman births her children which are us um, and that it was the animals who, who were willing to make that sacrifice for us to be able to be here. And so um, when, we, when we start to, to think about that, and the happy part of the story for those who are sad is that Sky Woman breathes her life back into um, Muskrat so that um, Muskrat can live again, you know, uh, because of uh, their willingness to sacrifice themselves their life was given back to them and then it goes into a whole story about how muskrat lives on the edge of the land and the water and one of our mm -hmm. our, our primary medicines is um is uh, muskrat root essentially so um mm -hmm. the um that connectivity that we have to the rest of creation that that understanding of that you know, that uh, original agreement that Kachila Gudawagan with that we made with the rest of creation um, is really a, a responsibility that we have, that we yes. carry, and that we oftentimes get confused in this uh, large echo chamber of rights, and we forget that every mm -hmm. right that we claim is balanced by a corresponding responsibility. Yes. And so, you know, I want to, I just want to mention that much, and then, um, also to go back to that Christian story of Adam and Eve, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, funny to think how people look at that and, and think, uh, you know, the original sin was the woman eating the apple. 
the original sin was Adam and Eve believing that they were something other than the rest of creation. Yes. It was the belief in separation that was the original mm -hmm. sin. So people have gotten the story wrong for all this time, right? So mm -hmm. when I look at that story, I see, ah, the original sin is their belief that they are other, mm -hmm. right? Because I've, you know, as a Skajinawi Apid, as an indigenous woman, um, and, um, you know, Nel Bunawabskewi from uh, the Penobscot Nation, uh, my people are um, Bunawabskewi, the land is Bunawabskewi, and the water is Bunawabskewi. There's no distinction between us. So mm -hmm. I was never kicked out of the garden, right? Yeah. It's that belief in separation that caused that removal from, um, from the rest of creation, right? That belief in otherness. And that has led to um, all of the harm that has occurred throughout history across the globe is that illusion of separation, that belief that that one group is somehow other and somehow superior, um, that belief in dominion, which has its its mm -hmm. derivative in in the terminology for domination, um, yes. that you know that 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 sickness of the mind mm -hmm. um, has been infecting the hearts of people across the globe for millennia. And so um, when I understand uh, this, and there's a certain sense of privilege in being a part of that colonial set, uh, that white Christian set that has moved across the planet and caused so much harm that is destructive to others and is destructive to the planet. Uh, the privilege that I have of belonging causes no harm and when I spread that privilege to others, it doesn't extend harm. It actually releases harm. Yes. And so I want to share that privilege of belonging that I have with everyone else and allow that to proliferate. Because when you have that sense of belonging, a sense of understanding your place as the youngest species on the planet uh, with the rest of creation, you put yourself in proper perspective. Yes. And that sickness of mind that is causing endless consumption, that dance of the cannibal giant uh, begins to diminish. And then we yes. start living in right relationship with one another and with the rest of creation. So I think that, um, you know, that part is, is important. Um, and, you know, that also goes back to the story that we have of the first illness, which is playing out before our eyes, a story that, um, you know, is a story that my great-great-grandmother heard from her great-great-grandmother and my grandmother told to me when I was just a small child. And uh, in that story, it tells us that uh, human beings, the youngest species, uh, had fallen out of alignment with the way of life. And that their elders, the trees and the animals, were suffering as a result of the misbehavior of the children of the earth, the human beings, uh, because we were children, right? Not because we were chosen, but because we were children. We were the youngest. Yes. Uh, that we had fallen out of alignment with life and were actively harming other lives as a result of that. And so the animals went into council and said, what are we going to do about our young relatives here? You know, and Think about uh, Giwaskep, that muskrat who gave their life for us mm -hmm. to exist. They love us, right? Mm -hmm. They love us in creation. And so it was a very difficult decision for them to come to uh, think about how can we teach them a lesson that's going to remind them of their interconnectedness. And so what the animals decided to do in that council was to give human beings illness 
So the animals gave human beings illness, just like right now we're suffering from COVID that came to us from the animals, right? Yes. And that there was not going to be uh, any uh, easy man-made remedy for that illness that came to them from the animals. And so after watching that the people suffer for a long period of time and many of them died, um, the trees and the plants went into council because they were also our elders. They had been here mm -hmm. for millions of years before we arrived. And, um, and they took pity on us and said, you know, what can we do to help them without denying them the benefit of their lesson? And the trees and the plants decided that they uh, would give the human beings the medicine that they needed to heal themselves of the illness that was given to them by the animals if the human beings could humble themselves enough to relearn the language of the plants and the trees and return to the natural world with some humility and ask for help. And so they floated that, that out uh, to the humans on a dream. Mm. And a grandmother got that got that message from the trees and the plants. And when she woke up, she had enough distant memory uh, to remember their connection yes. to the rest of creation. And she walked into the forest and she began to once again, try to communicate with the plants and the trees and the plants and the trees watched her until they could gauge the sincerity of her heart. Mm -hmm. uh, and when they saw that, then they started to communicate back to her and they taught her the medicine that she needed um, and how to prepare that and to give it to her people so that her people would begin to be well again. And so um, the, the story goes on to say that those people became well. And when that grandmother told them the story, um, she came back, they, they decided as a people to move back uh, in connection mm -hmm. to and in relationship with the rest of creation and move back closer to and into the forest. And um, the story tells us that we are the people who came back. And mm -hmm. so when we look at the history of the earth, there were nine humanoid species that we were known of. And uh, we're the only humanoid species to survive because at one time we remembered to go back mm -hmm. and now we've forgotten again. And so what COVID is teaching us is that we need to go back we need to go back to the land. And that's a call that you yes. and I and several others have been hearing for, for a long time now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I mean, there's so much um, joy in your words. I know that my very first medicine teachers, I remember them walking us around and teaching us about you know medicinal plants, but also before that, just talking a lot about what you're speaking of, of the relationship to the plant making offerings to the plant, asking the plant for, uh, you know, talking to the plant. This is these are the people I'm working with and the struggles they're having. You know, what advice do you have for me? And, you know, the, the instructions from the plant are going to be different for different people and different times. And, um, and this one particular teacher at the Festival of Traditional Medicine, I remember him saying that he had relationships with certain plants for 20, 30 years and those are his elders and his teachers. And that he came one day to a plant that had been completely harvested and killed. And he, he said, I cried and I wept at the side of that plant for hours. And he said, I need you to understand. I didn't cry and weep because somebody harvested the plant that, you know, or killed the plant that I harvest from. It's as if someone had killed my elder, my friend, my teacher, who I've known for decades um, and that's the level of, of relationship you have to have with the plants if you're going to walk this medicine path um, to, to be in that reverence that 
love, that respect um, with all beings in this way. So yeah, it touches me very deeply to hear you say that. Um, I, I just want to say one thing that just always strikes me as being funny is that, um, you know, Native people were always um, kind of ridiculed. Our, our ways of being and our ways of knowing were really diminished mm-hmm. uh, as we were being dehumanized and um, were treated as though they were ridiculous superstitions. And so our relationship with those plants, right, the ways of being in communication with them on a really deep level. Um, The remnants of that are called herbology, right? Mm -hmm. And our being able to communicate and gain the knowledge from the stones that was so ridiculed, science calls geology. Mm -hmm. Uh, And our connection to our relatives in the stars, you know, our ancestors, where we came from. Uh, you know, is, is, is looked at as superstition and, and science calls that astronomy. And mm-hmm. so it's like there have been these sciences that have been formed um, uh, in alignment with all of our ways of knowing and ways of being that have been ridiculed. And now science is scurrying to connect with indigenous peoples um, mm-hmm. for traditional ecological knowledge and other forms of knowledge uh, to help manage the times that we're in because science has proven time and time again over and over and over that what we have been saying for millennia is actually the truth and so now we're in this time of crisis where we have something really valid and valuable and important uh to share and to offer and i and i think that it's it's um uh, just incredibly necessary but also really beautiful that uh, there are enough of our people who are left you know we come from different peoples um, but we're mm-hmm. still uh, you know uh, what we call um, Skijinawak peoples, uh, Skijinaway people and those are the people of the earth you know the ones who came back and stayed in connection to mother earth and um, and that there's there are enough of us with our hearts still intact because we maintained that connection that we're still willing to teach even after all the harm has been done um, yes. to us. That, yes. That's part of that having the mechanisms uh, and the ceremonies uh, to be able to heal our own trauma by understanding, um, you know, the ways that we retain um, information uh, through time. So. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to, to mention that. Yes. I think a lot about one of my Toltec teachers, Sergio Magana, and, and how he talks about this time as a time of transition from the fifth sun to the sixth sun. And, you know, the Mayan calendars were in big transitions. And I know you've spoken to kind of the evolution of human consciousness and the particular shift that we're in right now. I know in, in the Toltec tradition, there's a lot of understanding that we're moving from a time of the fifth sun, which is marked by that separation that you're talking about, the duality, the isms, the judgment, the shame, the disconnection, um, both oppression and victimhood. And then we're supposed to be moving into a time where we're um, really being in that relationship that you're talking about above and below with our ancestors, with creator, with, with source. And being deeply, deeply in relationship with the mother and the guardians of the land and the plants and the trees to find that balance in our heart that you're speaking about. Um, and also, the, and I know in the Toltec calendar that uh, one of the things about stepping into this time of the sixth sun, this evolution of consciousness, is that it requires us to do deep ancestral healing and karmic healing. 
um, because we can't step into the next phase of evolution of consciousness if we don't do that shadow work, that healing work, that ancestor work, um, and that our ancestors dreamed us into being. You said that in the book, and I've, I've heard that when I've been ceremony with other people too. Like So many of our ancestors couldn't gather in one whole medicine wheel and one whole family with each other and then with all creation. And so these medicines are supposed to be coming out in this time as, as uh, prophecy has spoken about in many different peoples. Um, so um, what do you want to share with people at this moment around the part around ancestral healing? Because we live in a very highly pathological individualistic culture that is disconnected in that way and sees the healing is like, oh, I have to do healing on me, but doesn't understand the importance of that ancestral line healing to create new possibilities for future generations. Well, I think that, you know, we have, I think, 10 to 15 minutes before we transition to Q&A. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how do we uh, work a whole uh, body of knowledge into a sound bite? Uh, and mm -hmm. I think that's part of the challenge is that um, we, we never allow ourselves uh, what we call Indian time. Yes. And so, you know, Indian time has been... Um, morphed by some people into a way to make an excuse for being late. Uh, and I remember one time saying that to my grandfather when I was late for an appointment. He's like, well, why were you late? And I was talking about being late. And I said, well, I was running on Indian time. And he said, well, why don't you have a seat? And I knew I was in big trouble then, right? <laughs> and so, uh, uh, and he said to me, um, he said, you know, Indian time is, is not an excuse for being late. And it's not an excuse for you to disrespect the time of others because mm. others are willing to give you their time, which is precious, not for you to squander it or to be disrespectful of it, um, but for you to honor, you know, what that gift that they're giving you and that yes. um, what Indian time really is, is about taking the time necessary to make a really full informed decision to not mm. make a move until you're able to see all sides. That's why we're people of the circle um, yes. because we have a vision from all sides when we're in circle together. And when we share with one another and we allow for that time um, to be in conversation with each other um, mm -hmm. around something, then we're able to fully examine what it is that we're looking at. And then we can make a decision together on how to move forward and that that was the true meaning of Indian time. Uh, yes. when, when the colonists talked about Indian time, it was about the time that Indian people took to deliberate and make a good decision. Right. And so, uh, right now we don't, we don't give ourselves that time because everything is, you know, we got to make decisions real quick and, uh, we give our, our, you know, decision makers, three to 5,000 page bills with all of this stuff tucked in there really sneakily. And we expect them to make a really well-informed decision on it. And they don't have the time because they have yeah. dozens of those. Um, yeah. And so we see what happens, right? We look around and we see the society that's been formed out of that kind of behavior. And mm -hmm. we realize that it's not good. And so, uh, you know, the first thing is to really just slow down and take the time. Mm -hmm. That's another lesson that COVID is yes. giving us is, yes. is to take the time to really make uh, good decisions and to be able to have a full conversation um, mm -hmm. and to understand that time is not linear. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that every error, every age, every dimension of time is occurring simultaneously. And so there's this, um, this story that uh, somebody came to me with and said, you know, what do you think this means? And there was uh, a situation where uh, around the same day, it wasn't always exactly the same time, but it was around the same day of the year, uh, there would be a ghost sighting mm. in this one place. And they said, you know, what do you think happened on that day? Because, you know, when we see this ghost, there is never anything traumatic going on. We just see them. And I said, I think that that's just that wheel of time, that where they exist in time and where you exist in time are just passing in that moment. That's the Mm -hmm. size of the wheel, right? That that's just them passing you by. And when they're passing you by, you can look over and you can see them going by. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we understand time in in this completely... Um, erroneous fashion. We think that time yeah. is linear. And so when when we heal, we also understand, uh, you know, ourselves in regard to seven generations. So when I think about myself, I, I recognize that, uh, you know, my great, great grandmother carried this, the eggs for my being in her body. Mm-hmm. She carried the eggs of three generations that led to me being here holding this space and time. And that I also carried the eggs of three generations in front of me. So the three generations in front of me and the three generations behind me, I'm biologically connected to. And so, you know, that's that seventh generation marker. And so we have all of these ways that we understand time that are different from the ways that Mm -hmm. um, the colonial society understands time. And so when we, when we start to have uh, an awareness about those things and we start to recognize that, Uh, When I create healing within myself, uh, I'm healing the three generations going forward and I'm healing the three generations going back. Mm -hmm. And so when we had the first Healing Turtle Island gathering, um, you know, we had about uh, close to a thousand people that came the first year, uh, Mm -hmm. right around 900 people that came the first year from six continents. uh, And we did a healing ceremony with all of the people that were there and invited them to to put their traumas into the fire. And then we had people that did ceremony um, for all of those traumas. And then when that was done and we cleared out the space, we opened that Western gate, that Western doorway, and we invited the ancestors to come in and to put their trauma in that fire. And more than 400 people who had never seen anything like this before sent me emails after saying, I can't believe it, I saw the ancestors. Like they literally could see their ancestors coming in and putting things into that fire. And so, you know, we're connected with them. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and that healing that can occur um, when there's a healing that happens in our back line, it ripples forward and it actually changes our present reality in the moment we're living in right now. Not Mm -hmm. enough people understand uh, how that works and we can't, we can't define it and we can't discuss it meaningfully in a short period of time, but just, you know, there's, there's vibration and there's frequency involved in the storage of our ancestral memory, which is like a tuning fork that gives Mm -hmm. coordinates to where in time, uh, that memory exists. Right. Yes. And so just like a soldier who reacts to the sound of fireworks and has this traumatic memory come forward, uh, we have that resonance of trauma within us that we carry that when we hit that, that 
tune, right? That yes. frequency uh, where that trauma is stored and it starts to shake within us and vibrate and create a sound um, that we have the opportunity in that moment to work with that song of that trauma and yes. to, and to move it out of us, you know, in a really healing way. Uh, but we also have the same exact thing that happens in regard to ancestral knowledge. Yeah. So just like we have the stored, the stored trauma, we also have the stored knowledge. Uh, yes. And so when we can be in coherence with that ancestral knowledge, uh, we're able to clear out intergenerational trauma in that front line and in that back line simultaneously. Mm -hmm. um, and then that ripples out to all of the lives, all of the branches of that family tree that are going yes. out. Right. Yes. I mean, it's just incredibly powerful, but you know, like I said, we, we've been so narrow in the way that we've been taught to think about things in the mainstream society and, mm -hmm. and this kind of depth of knowledge that we carry in our indigenous traditions is I think what we have to offer right now to help people to manage the reality that we're currently living in because um, there just aren't the tools, mm -hmm. um, you know, or the mechanisms or the understandings available in the mainstream to solve the problems that have been created um, by the mainstream. And so we need yes. to bring in this, this new knowledge that's actually old original yes. uh, sacred knowledge yes yeah i feel the same way you know it's just such an honor to to be trained in some of the toltec healing medicine and practices and ceremonies I just was with someone yesterday who you know had both love and challenge with her mother who's who's on the other side who's an ancestor and she you know as she was clearing some of the karmic ancestral trauma in the ceremony she could feel her mom saying thank you Thank you. Um, and so that gratitude and love of the ancestors of, of unburdening them of some of the heaviness they carry. Also, you know, in that relationship, then it's, it's, oh, everything is always about relationship, right? Because it's in that relationship of wanting to heal ourselves and healing them that they're able to impart some of that wisdom that you're talking about. We can't receive that wisdom or if we're not in relationship and so it's one of those medicines, right? You know, it's really about shifting to responsibility and relationship um, that will find our way forward individually and collectively as a family. Yeah, I think it's, it's really um, important. Uh, and so when we talk about, when I talked about uh, Kachila Gudawag in that, um, you know, Kachi means big or really important. Lagudawagan uh, is the is that sacred contract, that sacred agreement. Uh, mm -hmm. What that actually means is we're entering into a kinship relationship with the other, yeah, uh, or with someone. Um, so when we make an agreement to enter into that kinship relationship, then we agree to take care of um, that individual and to treat them the same way that we would our kin, our most beloved kin. Yes, and so, yes. um, you know, we need to be thinking about all aspects of, of our relationships with one another. I also talk about um, in the book, the value of enough, um, mm -hmm. you know, which is making sure that, that everyone has enough to live their lives with dignity yes. and, uh, you know, a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose and connectivity. And so when, when we start thinking about um, uh, what does that look like? What does that mean? Uh, it all comes down to relationship, 
uh, you know, yes. uh, in Bamuk, all, all indigenous peoples have some form of that term in their language and their prayer language, which means uh, I offer, I offer this to all of my relations. Yes. Uh, recognizing that when I ask for anything for myself, I recognize that all of creation is impacted by it because we're all connected. I'm mm -hmm. also wishing every good thing that I would wish for myself for all of those, uh, you know, within my kinship network. Yes. And so, um, you know, that that's that's the key to it all. And um, the I, I'm building community right now. Uh, and and one of the we we've talked you and I have talked about this and I know that you're uh, moving in the direction of also uh, you know coming back to the land and building um, community and uh, the the name of of the community that I'm um, helping to build mm -hmm. with the help of a lot of uh, beings in creation yes. and uh, also some <laughs> humans as well who have joined me on this path is uh, Wajukum Tiltina Kinship Community. And Wujukum Tiltina um, means let's help one another. Let's mm. help one another. So it really is about honoring that value of enough. Let's help one another live in relationship with Mother Earth in a way that we were meant to. Uh, yes. That honors the sacredness of every life. Let's help one another have less impact on um, the rest of creation. Let's help one another have uh, food security. Let's help one another learn how to plant and care for our medicine so we can have, uh, you know, that that health uh, security that we need. Uh, yes. And, uh, you know, let's help one another lift up and make space for all of our individual gifts so that we can offer what we came in to offer in order for the, you know, to benefit the rest of life. And so it's all, all about relationship. Yes. All aspects of relationship are, are reviewed and honored and worked with in the process mm -hmm. of that creation. So Yes, and that's one of the things, the work of our time, right? So many have been trained in transactional relationship, which is not real relationship to, to being in that kinship that you're talking about, um, that sacred responsibility to be in relationship. Um, yeah, I, the, before we move into the questions, it just makes me think a lot about a message my grandmother gave me. My maternal grandmother speaks to me a lot from the other side. And um, several years ago, I had to do a commencement address at Naropa University and had, of course, written something up. And in my dreams that night before, she's like, that's not what you're going to say. <laughs> I woke up and had to write down everything she was telling me in the dream time. But one of the things that really stuck out to me was she said, um, one of the things I want you to say is that there's more than enough. It's more, there's more than enough and you only need a hundred hammers for a hundred people when you're isolated and afraid of each other. And that really sat with me. Um, and I, you know, I'm really grateful for all the things she asked me to share that day, but that one sticks with me a lot of just the scarcity consciousness that the illusion, um, the separation has caused. Right. And, and that relationship with the land, too, that's not just relationship with living beings, it's relationship with spirit beings, with land, with land guardians. It's, we have so much, we have such an abundance of relationship um, when we're tuned in, right? And, and that, the words that always come to me are like, if you tend to a relationship, you tend to vibration and frequency, the rest will work itself out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that reminds me of, um, there's a, a, a really dear friend of mine who you may have met at CIIS during the Women Rising or another event in the past. Um, 
uh, Genevieve Vaughn. Mm -hmm. And Jen, um, I was really connected to her and interested in getting to know her. And now she's a really dear friend of mine because she talks about um, the economy in terms of mothering. And mm -hmm. she's the first mm -hmm. European woman that I had ever heard talk about uh, this uh, matrifocal, matricultural way of caring for one another in economic terms, because that's truly, uh, I come from a matrilineal, um, you know, culture, uh, we're matriarchal people, and um, matrifocal, you know, the mothers and the grandmothers are the center of the community, and they guide the decision making, because their decision making is based on the well-being of all. Yes. And making sure that everyone, all life is nurtured and cared for and cultivated and, uh, you know, loved and uh, in the way that it should be. And, and so, um, you know, looking at things from, from that perspective uh, is something that I had never thought of in terms of economy, because that's just, you know, it's for us, to, oh, this is just the way that you behave in the world. This is how we're mm -hmm. taught to behave, right? How to be a good relative, um, and, uh, so I was really drawn to, to that concept. And I think that that is, that's also, I've incorporated that into the center of our community is, uh, you know, everything is not going to be based on an exchange economy. It's going to be based on this mothering, uh, matrifocal mm. love economy. That's about making <laughs> sure that everyone has enough, right? Yes. And that's where we really need to go. I think yes. as a species is back in relation to that. And, uh, out of the sickness of mind that leads us to hoarding and yes. to capitalist consumption, which is has become um, really cannibalistic consumption because we're cannibalizing uh, human life at this point in order to maintain our levels of consumption. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. So we have a couple of questions coming in that I'd love to turn, turn towards. Um, and the first couple actually center around uh, issues of identity and, and some of the things we're talking about. The first one, uh, Liz asks, my family has not lived on a reservation for the last two generations. One tribe is still fighting for recognition. I'm wondering how a sense of identity or lack of identity affects our well-being. Well, I think that, you know, it, it, it has a major impact on on our well-being, um, especially if we're um, really reaching to identify with something that we're only tangentially connected to at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I think that people really get confused with, um, I, I'm a citizen of a nation that I am actively involved in where I have a sense of belonging, not only do I claim them, but they claim me. There's yes. a living relationship that exists there. Um, that's very different than having lineage. I also have in my lineage, a connection to Scotland, um, but I am not Scottish, right? And mm -hmm. so I, I'm not gonna go around and say that I'm Scottish because I have a great, great grandmother who has, who is part Scottish. Um, you know, there's a difference between having a lineal connection and having a living connection. And so, you know, understanding the distinction between that and trying to find a place to navigate all aspects of one's identity and, and how does that come into play in the present moment of your life um, is critically important to defining your identity. And when you're confused about that, because I, I think that a lot of people um, are really reaching for indigenous identities right now because they 
have realized that what is available to them in the world in the mainstream um, is empty mm-hmm. and that there's something tangible and meaningful and purposeful and um, just uh, grounding that they can hold on to in regard to indigenous um, culture. So my, my, my recommendation would be speak to that blood that's within Mm. you and let that guide you because um, you know, blood has memory, that blood has memory uh, and that blood can guide you to your own place in the world right now. That's meaningful and purposeful and grounding. Um, and it's complex. You know, this is not yeah. something that you really can answer in a soundbite because there are so many displaced uh, indigenous peoples. Um, you know, d- diaspora for indigenous peoples is 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 severe. Yes. Uh, in not only this country but around the world, uh, as it is for Black people who have been stolen and brought to this land under slavery, as it is for all of the migrant populations. Right. There's there's uh, this the sense of being ungrounded in place because we have a motherland. We have a magnetic orientation to the land of our birth. You know, there's all of this complexity built in that we don't have time to talk about here in a soundbite. Yes. Um, but if you can just sit with the resonance of your own blood mm-hmm. and speak to that and allow that to guide you rather than thinking that you have to attach to some kind of identity of what should or supposed to be, um, uh, that you don't have a living connection with. So you can't have a conversation with somebody from that, from that, um, place, then, then it, you know, um, it becomes difficult and then things get distorted. And I think that, you know, that that's probably, um, something that I would like to have a conversation over weeks yes. about yes. rather than in a soundbite, because anything that I say is going to seem trite and it's going to seem insignificant and it's going to, um, you know, seem uh, like it's demeaning or diminishing the significance of that question uh, because yeah. the, our sense of identity, our sense of belonging has been so disrupted through colonization that, you know, how do we find that sense of, of belonging when there's nothing here tangible for me to grab onto? All I can say is it's in your blood. Yes. yes. Communicate with that knowledge that's in your blood memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes. And that will guide you. Yes. Yeah. A lot of the Toltec practices around ancestral healing are also about unlocking the medicine and the DNA in the blood for this time, unlocking the blood memory, the ancestral memory. Um, and also just, uh, you know, there's this fluidity of, you know, I know that when I was, I wasn't raised in indigenous practice here, but I had an indigenous way of being as a child. And I certainly know that, um, when I started doing Buddhist ancestor practice, that's when my grandma started saying, oh, I've been waiting for you to call. <laughs> and then she started leading me to the teachers I needed to work with, right? Yeah, um, so I'm really grateful for that. Um, but yeah, I, 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 it's an interesting uh, question. This, the other questions that are coming up are related. Uh, one person, Hart, asks, in the context of Black Life Matters, how can indigenous teaching support and help Black lives in America? And a related question, about healing reconnection for folks who have been disconnected from their indigenous roots for generations. For example, African-Americans whose indigenous connections are forcibly erased and white folks who don't remember a time when they were indigenous to a place. So those, I think they're very related to the prior question because it's a question of identity and place and and the response that you gave. And then I remember uh, a dear friend, McKenny Themba, uh, once 
saying to uh, a group of people about this question um, and around healing, like, what would it mean to become indigenous to place wherever you are, even if it's not your ancestral land? What would it mean to develop relationship to the land you're on, to the indigenous people of the land that you're on, um, to start reconnecting with your ancestors um, and asking their advice, their, their, you know, and supporting their healing is your healing. Um, so yeah, this is a very interesting question around how we talk about folks who've had more disconnection for a longer time um, and how they navigate those waters in ways that are responsible, right? It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that's important for people to understand, and again, you know, this is a long discussion. I actually talk a lot about this in the, in the follow-up to sacred instructions um, mm -hmm. about blood memory, about motherland, you know, mother tongue, all of these things that connect us to place um, because it's, it's a question that comes up all the time. Um, and it, it's really doing a disservice to try to even answer it in this type of format. Yes. And I, yeah. I want to apologize to uh, anyone who may get offended by my skirting the issue because it can't really be addressed. But I think it's important to, for people to recognize that uh, there's a magnetic resonance within our blood. And mm -hmm. so when we're born, uh, one of the practices uh, that's common amongst indig indigenous peoples around the world from every continent is uh, having some type of ceremony around transitioning the umbilical cord from the birth mother to the earth mother. Yes. Because there's a recognition that when we're born, when our bodies enter into this world, uh, our, our blood, the metal in our blood actually magnetically orients to the land of our birth. And so even if that's not our ancestral land, we have a magnetic orientation to the motherland, the land that we were birthed into. And so there's going to be some kind of connection to that. Uh, the ancestors in that land may not be your ancestors, but the earth is a very small place, right? And so uh, that, that blood memory that you have and that connection to the magnetic orientation of the land of your birth connects you to the larger uh, sphere of Mother Earth, where all peoples come from. Um, that doesn't mean that you can say, well, you know, my family was uh, lived in, in the state of Maine for three generations, so we're indigenous. Um, you know, that's, that's not the same thing. You can say, uh, this is the land of my birth, yes. right? And, and that's absolutely 100% true. Um, but being, you're not an original you're not one of the original peoples of that land. And so, uh, you know, this, this whole thing um, uh, gets tied up with like these new agey ideas of oneness. Um, and I don't see color. We're all the human race. Uh, that whole spiritual bypassing um, mm -hmm. stuff that goes on that doesn't acknowledge the harm that's actually been done to the original peoples of the places that are being occupied by settlers. Um, if, you're, if your people are not originally from there, uh, you're a settler. Me as a Banawabskewi, as a Chquabanakiag person, if I were to go uh, to my west, uh, to, the, to the southwest, just a short distance from here, and ended up in Haudenosaunee territory in New York, mm -hmm. um, I would be a settler in Haudenosaunee territory because I'm not an original person from that land. And so even though I'm indigenous, right? And so, um, you know, understanding all of this complexity um, and how it just is maddening 
uh, in a time when people are trying to figure out who they are in relation to life. Um, we always go back to the soil and go back to the blood because there's nothing that's going to clarify for you uh, more quickly than a deep connection to mother earth. Uh, you know, making, finding somebody who uh, can sincerely guide you uh, if you don't know the way into making that connection and to remember boys and girls, never, ever, ever do ceremony with anyone that charges you money for ceremony. Uh, that that actually is a diminishment of the medicine and that there is no true medicine person who will ever charge you money for ceremony. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's part of the problem is that we have this pop culture profitability attached to, to ceremony as part of the appropriation of indigenous ceremonies and that um, that has become uh, a part of the capitalist economy. Um, and because of that, uh, there we have a lot of false prophets and plastic shaman and and, and false medicine people out there who are pretending that they can do this for you, um, but they don't really have the capacity to do that in a way that's gonna serve you in the long term. And so I just caution people uh, about, about that, so. There's a related question that seems to segue into one of the questions that's in there uh, about, uh, Diana Romo asks, can you speak to the use of ayahuasca and other native medicines of the land to help heal ancestral trauma and awaken to our true nature? Uh, I, I will not speak about ayahuasca because I am not from an ayahuasca tradition. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to know about ayahuasca, uh, then you should ask the people who that is their medicine. Um, mm -hmm. Everybody, wherever you come from, uh, you, you have your own medicine that's connected to you know, your, your blood. It's, it's, it's just like um, I can't... Uh, I can't exist in a healthy state of being on a diet that um, serves somebody on the other side of the world because my genetic predisposition is to the diet of my place. Uh, it's the same with medicines. Like when we walk in our bare feet on the earth over time, the earth actually grows up medicines that are necessary for us, mm -hmm. for our healing, for our, you know, for to feed our bodies, to feed our spirits. And if your bare feet have not lived in relation to a place for generations, um, then chances are that medicine is not going to be for you. And so um, I also think that there's been a lot of appropriation of those kinds of medicines that has actually taken away, uh, it, it's being grown, mass produced, and the efficacy of those medicines is being diminished. It's the same thing with peyote where they're, they're farming peyote now and the efficacy of those medicines is not the same as it was in the past um, because it's being mass produced. Um, that's part of the sickness of the mind that we're talking about and in the way that people are uh, looking at spirituality as a consumptive um, practice that's part of capitalism uh, rather than actually going back to what is the medicine of my own people and how do I reconnect? Because it's a lot more work, let's be honest. It takes a lot more work to trace your own lineage back to what your your uh, own people's medicine was than it does for you to just go and, and use the medicine of somebody else who's not lost connection to it. Uh, and that's why I always recommend the work of Sharon Blackie, who 
really got connected to her spiritual life by engaging with indigenous people, but then said, this is not my way. So now I'm going to go and I'm going to search out and I'm going to find my own ways. And so she wrote this incredible book called if women wrote, if women rose rooted talking about going back and finding your own roots and the power of, of the connection to the medicines of your own land. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, that's a, that's a bit of a lengthy rant and lecture, but I will not speak about somebody else's medicine. That's not for my tradition. Yeah. And uh, uh, one of the things that struck me in the video that I had mentioned around Pat McCabe earlier was just talking about, um, yeah, that women of all nations need to come back into their connection with the earth, back into connection with their ancestors, back, in connection with their medicine bundles, which they, if they, they said, you know, to her, you have the technology to go back and talk to your ancestors and ask for medicine bundles that were lost, you know, help other people figure out how to reconnect. Right. Because they have medicine bundles too, that have been lost. And um, yeah. How do we, and, and how do we support all that to come through and be in balance again? I have a a quick story about that Um, Mm -hmm. from our perspective. We had, um, uh, you know, we're people of wampum because we're, uh, you know, along the edge of the ocean. And so uh, it was our people here in this territory actually used wampum and we traded wampum with the, uh, you know, our neighbors like the Haudenosaunee. And so their, their wampum originally comes from, from our territory because they're, you know, they're freshwater um, Mm -hmm. people. And so, um, when, when we, uh, recovered years ago, we recovered these really ancient wampum belts, um, that were part of our early tradition. Some of them Mm -hmm. were over 400 years old and, um, some of them people were able to read others. They weren't able to read at all. And so um, rather than just saying, oh, well, we've lost the ability to know what this means. So we're just going to forget about it and go over here and we're going to, you know, uh, order up a new tradition on Amazon because it's easier. Uh, The people went into ceremony with those belts and they held them and they slept with them and they prayed with them for months and months and months and sometimes years until the messages in there started coming to them in their dreams. You know, they did mm-hmm. all kinds of fasting and ceremony with those uh, to really seek out that information. And now all of the knowledge from those belts has come back and people are able to easily read them and to transfer that knowledge on to others. And, and it mm-hmm. opened up, it opened up uh, because, you know, as soon as that memory was triggered, that, tuning fork was hit and it started vibrating where that thread was and it opened up all kinds of other knowledge that was actually stored within our being. So the ability and the willingness to go back and to do that hard work, to fast for, to ask for, to really be in ceremony for as long as it takes to connect with that knowledge and to build your traditions around it, right? Because traditions had to start somewhere. If you feel yours are lost, do that hard work get the knowledge um, that, and ask for the threads to tie you back, to lead you to the information that you're missing. Um, the benefit of that is going to help the entire world because yes. this ancient knowledge that we all carried at the beginning of time when we were all earth-based peoples, 
um, helped us to all live in, in harmony with one another. And so we need all of that information to be reactivated. So, you know, I mean, I just really hope that people will have the commitment to do that work because it's going to benefit all life. Because uh, mm-hmm. that forgetting about how to live in relationship with one another is, is, is in that space where those things have been lost. And they're not lost forever because they live within you right? They live within your blood. Uh, we're connected to all life through quantum entanglement all the way back to the song of Kachiniwes into the matter uh, that was held by Ekchumundo. And so all of that knowledge still exists, not mm-hmm. somewhere back in linear time, but simultaneously interdimensionally with us right now, right here in this space. And it's accessible to us if we're just really willing to do the work to connect to it. Yes, yes. Yes. Uh, we probably have time for just a few more. Um, let's go with Lita Kingfisher's uh, question about how do women safely address the sexism within the Midewiwin Lodge, the sexist patriarchy that exists within Indian country and within ceremony? Uh, well, another big question that, that can't be answered in seven months yet. Well, I think that, I think that there is an easy answer to that and that not all uh, Medewin lodges are sexist. And so mm-hmm. I don't know what, um, what her experience has been. Um, but, uh, I know that here we are very, very, very careful about making sure that there's always balanced representation between the masculine and the feminine and mm-hmm. that, um, uh, here, because understanding how, how our stories Uh, teach us how creation works, that the voice of the woman always comes first uh, Mm -hmm. here. And, and so, uh, you know, it's really not, you can't, there's no uh, like um, pan Indianism, right? Like there's no, uh, there's Mm -hmm. no one size fits all label um, for, for that. There are, there are Medellin people from a number of different areas all the way from uh, the Northeast over into, you know, as far away as Manitoba. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's They're literally over more than yeah. 600 different tribal nations uh, mm-hmm. and communities that are within that span. And, and so uh, there is, you know, I, I would seek out another lodge where that doesn't exist. That's what I would do. Um, but yeah. here we're also challenging it and saying, you know, we're not going to allow you to, re- uh, to make our ceremonies religion. Uh, we're not mm-hmm. going to allow you to colonize our ways of being. We're not going to allow you to diminish the sacredness of the women. And we're just standing up to it. And we're just saying no. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we allow ourselves to be controlled by religiosity, uh, we've lost the connection to our ceremony. So if you're feeling that in ceremony somewhere, I would leave and I would go to another place where the where the ceremony is not um, constrained by those uh, colonial religious um, kind of pair, you know, parameters. That's what I would do. Mm-hmm. And then there's one more question. Uh, Tia Bruce had asked, what do we do when there's such a fear of loss related to death? How do we heal from this? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, that's a big question that depends on context. And yes. I think that, um, you know, if you're, if you're, you're, you have your own fear of death, 
um, there are different things that you can do to address that. Uh, if you have the fear of losing others around you, there are different things that you can do to address that. Uh, and I, you know, I can just share one story that like when my dad was dying, um, and I knew, uh, we saw each other and, and we, you know, held hands and looked at each other in the eye and we knew that, uh, I probably wouldn't see him alive again because I was living over 3000 miles away from him at that time. Um, and we, you know, we said things that we needed to say to each other and it was, you know, it was an incredible gift that we both had the, you know, presence of mind and the emotional capacity to be able to be together in that way. Um, but when I was, you know, 3000 miles away and I, um, I knew that he was working his way in that direction. Uh, I started, uh, working every single day to, um, take some time to connect with his spirit. And so, you know, I connected my spirit to his spirit every day and, and communicated with him in that way. Uh, I made, made a point of doing that every single day so that when he, his physical existence uh, ceased, that, that spiritual connection was still, um, still there. Yes. And, um, and so, you know, that's one way to prepare yourself for the loss of a loved one is to be able to do that because you don't miss a beat. You don't have to try to establish it after they're gone. Exactly. You yeah. can establish it while they're still living and, and be in spiritual contact with them. Um, and so that it's, it's much more natural and easy uh, for you to be able to do that. But, um, you know, I think that that also is a question that, um, you know, there's a number of answers to depending on context. And for sure. uh, I think that it's, it's a dangerous business to give a one size fits all to a question like that. So mm -hmm. uh, I'll just say that much about that yes. for now. Yeah. It looks like we have one question left, which we probably can't get into deeply, but um, just sharing it for those who are participants out there who might resonate with a question. Uh, Megan Palome asks, I'm a mixed black woman. Half of my ancestors were colonizers and the others were enslaved. How do I know which thread to follow? Uh, I wouldn't choose. I would follow them both. And um, I, you know, I think that there's value in, in uh, when we can heal the threads within us, uh, we have a powerful impact uh, on that whole history. And so I would just trace both of those threads back to their origination point, back to the seed. And then you can start working out from the seed and going forward and changing the yes. spiritual. Uh, what's a word I want? Um, there's a word I want that I can't think of. Um, so you can change the resonance of the thread. Yes. Um, and, and so if you, if you trace them both back to the point of their seat of origin, uh, to their purest state, and then choose to then come, you know, back out and carry that forward, uh, yes. in time, uh, everything that ripples out from your threads, like we talked about earlier, is going to have a healing impact on your whole entire line on both sides. And so yes. I wouldn't choose because if you choose, then you're denying an aspect of yourself. Yes. And every bit of you, uh, what makes you, you, uh, is critically important to the world. You were born for this time, just as you mm -hmm. are, you're meant to be. And so, uh, bring all of yourself forward right now for, uh, the benefit of all life 
I think that's the most beautiful thing you can do is to, is to show up fully embodied uh, yes. in the world by, by honoring all of who you are. Yeah, I definitely want to echo that because I know that my ancestors come both from the Spanish European and the indigenous Chorotega. And I love all of who I am and I love all of my ancestors and their beauty and in their imperfection. And I also can see now that some of my ancestors were more whole, more intact, more in relationship with the land and ancestors. And some had lost that connection to the land and to their ancestors long ago. And I see how much trauma they carried and also how much trauma they inflicted. And I have compassion and a commitment to healing that line as much as I do the indigenous line, um, because I understand that privilege of belonging and the wisdom and the medicine. And um, yeah, don't, I don't hate any parts of me anymore. And I might've, when I was young, you know, some parts of it. And so, yeah, I want to encourage folks to follow those lines back and to recognize that, you know, we all have healthy and unhealthy ancestors. And you're going to find that actually in both those lines in the colonized and the, um, and the indigenous, you know, have health, and trauma, health and wellness and trauma uh, as well. And so we want to, we want to embrace all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do believe our time is up. So what I do want to do is thank you, Sherry. And I also want to thank your ancestors um, and the lineages and the land and mother earth that you're on and all the ways that she speaks through you that way. And all the future generations that are calling us to have these conversations now to create new possibilities, new quantum possibilities, vibrations, resonances for the future in this time of prophecy, in this time of consciousness evolution, that we're, we're all here for a reason. And we all have a role to play in this shift. And so that, that healing is such an integral part of being able to carry our peace, or, or what we would call our Quetzalcoatl nature in the time of the sixth sun, you know, um, we got we it's it's imperative if we came in this time to do this healing work so that we can be who we came here to be and give the gifts we came here to give yeah yeah, yeah. you know and like you said our ancestors birthed us and uh dreamed us into being like uh, you know i talk about that in the book and that you know now we bear the responsibility of dreaming the next generations into yes. being and if we That's can just sure. teach ourselves to be quiet and to really listen, we can hear them, you know, calling out to us, asking us to preserve the privilege for them uh, of being born and living this life, which is a gift. And, yes. um, and so, you know, we now carry that responsibility of not only dreaming them into being, but dreaming and actively creating collectively together a world mm -hmm. where they can not only be born into, but can thrive within. So... Yes. You know, that's, yes. that's our work so thank, thank you. you and and thank you to ciis and um yes. our support folks who are behind the scenes here and to everybody that's joined us uh, yes. online today thank you very much thank you for listening to the ciis public programs podcast our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. 
If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.